So um, chapter 6 is a little hard to do because this part introduces us to Stephen in a fuller sense. And then chapter 7 is this lengthy message from Stephen. And so the re two really go together. But I'm struggling to figure out how I'm going to do chapter 7 by itself because it's such a long sermon. Uh, so I figure we'll take this portion by itself. But when you look at just this introduction to Stephen, it really has a lot to say to us. It's pretty important um, because what's coming is, we've mentioned this previously, what's coming in the book of Acts is persecution. There's, there's going to be mounting resistance to the church. There's constant persecution. And so this person of Stephen is presented to us at this point as an example He's, he's shown to us as someone who we can look to and say, what can we learn from his life? And that's one of the things about Acts is a lot of it, most of it is narrative. And in narrative scriptures, it's simply telling a story. It's not like an epistle that says, here's these deep theological truths. And so how do you understand narrative? How do you handle narrative? How do you preach narrative or how do you interpret it? Well, what you do is try to look at it, see what the story says, get what's going on. And then it, I think the real question to ask is, what is God doing here? Because God inscripturated this narrative, this story about Stephen. He put it in the Bible, and he expects us to get something from it. So what is it that God is accomplishing by doing these things, by saying these things, by telling this story? So we're going to kind of look at the narrative, but also try to unpack some of the application by looking, God, what are you doing here? How, how does this show us more of Jesus Christ? And remember, the book of Acts is about disciples making disciples. So it's a continuation of Luke. And it's supposed to help us grow in discipleship. And I think Stephen is a great example of that. So uh, let's take a look. Now, you remember uh, last week that was the, the first congregational business meeting of the church? Um, and they, they had a problem because they needed to serve tables. And the apostles said, well, we can't do that because we've got this very important ministry called the ministry of the word. Um, but we don't want to neglect the tables either because that's a very important ministry. So the resolution was, let's pick some other people and dedicate them to that. And one of those people was Stephen. And one of the criteria was that they had to be filled with the Spirit, and that's exactly what we're seeing here with Stephen. Now, the other thing that, that this story of Stephen is pointing to is, if you remember back in chapter 4, um, after the apostles had been arrested and released, the church gathered and prayed. And one of the things they prayed in verses, verses 29 and 30, they said, And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was how they prayed in chapter 4. We look at, at uh, Stephen and what we're seeing is that's exactly what's going on. God answers prayers. And he answered their prayer, and he's answering it in this man named Stephen. So the first thing that, that it says, well, I'm sorry, as we look at this, it's, there's, there's three things I want to bring out. First of all is this idea of being full of grace, because it says that Stephen was full of grace and power. What does it mean to be full of grace? Um, and then in answering that question, we need to look at the role of theology. How does theology fit into that? And then finally, what are the results of being filled with grace? What does it look like? And that, that's where we're going to go. So this first part uh, introduces Stephen as full of grace. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Who's been doing all the signs and wonders up to this point? It's been the apostles. And now we meet Stephen, and Stephen is doing signs and wonders. What this means is, is God is um, blessing his church. It's not stranded with just the 12. God is using people throughout the church, even the deacons, um, 
like that's a bad thing, like that's a negative. Using even the deacons, it's, it's spreading, and, and God is using his church to bring his message. And you remember we talked about signs and wonders, and I said they have a purpose. There's a point to them. It's not just it's entertaining for the sheep. God attends often the preaching of his word, especially in new places where the gospel has to go. He will sometimes attend it with signs and wonders. And so that's what we see here is, is we've heard about how Peter has done these signs and, and it got people's attention. And, and, and now Peter or uh, Stephen is doing the same thing. So when it says that he was full of grace and power, um, it, it, those aren't two separate things working in two different ways. It isn't like he got you know, the, the, the power button and then got his, his grace button. It's the grace of God that is giving him the power to do these signs and wonders. So what's grace? Uh, I, this is one of those, you know, the preacher is always going to hammer on this point. This is my point that I'm always going to hammer on is what is grace and how do we get more of it? And the reason I don't mind hammering on it is because I think we forget. I know I forget and I need to hear it again and again and again. So when we look at Stephen being full of grace and power, how do I get more grace? If Stephen had that much grace, how do I get more grace? So first of all, what is grace? I've defined it in the past as God's unmerited favor. At its root, what grace means is favor, positive disposition. So when we talk about God's grace, it's God's grace. It's not people's grace. It's not people liking you more or, or finding you more entertaining. That's not what that is. Since we're what we call embodied spirits, we're used to seeing a face, and that's the feedback that we get. But God's grace, we don't get to necessarily see his face when we, when we experience his favor. So we got to be careful to not look at other people and say, I must be doing well because other people like me or something. Um, it's God's unmerited favor. It, it, it's from the Father. It's God, and he's put it on you. It's unmerited. Couldn't think of a better word to use there. Uh, it's unearned. It's not that you have been good this week and therefore God likes you more. Um, I did an extra long Bible study, so God must really be happy with me. Um, that's, that's merited favor, and that's not really favor. That's just sucking up or something. It's, it's not what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor. God's favor comes to you because of Jesus Christ. As you are in Jesus Christ, then his favor is on you. When God looked at his son, he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So if you're in the son, then God is well pleased with you. His favor rests upon you. It's unmerited. And it's favor. It's not just God thinking happy thoughts about you. It's not he's got your picture on his mantelpiece and every once in a while he looks over and goes, ah, that's my boy. It, it, it's more than that. It is God has fixed his love on you. He has set his love on you. And it's not a cheap and easy love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It cost God an immense amount to fix his favor on you. His favor is not something easy. It's not just a, a quick, like, oh, I have a warm feeling about them. It is his relentless, unending love for you. That's what it means to be in God's favor. And so if God has fixed his favor on you without your merit, without you doing anything, then what's the result of that? Do you just feel better in the morning? You wake up and you feel warm because God's loving you? God's love, love in the Bible is an action. It's not primarily a feeling. It is a feeling, but it's a feeling that results in an action. And so listen to some of the things that God's favor, God's love, God's grace does for you. This is how active God's grace is. We have been saved by grace. That's Ephesians 2, Titus 2, 
2 Timothy 1, there's a ton of them. We have been saved by God's grace. God's grace, his favor towards you led him to take the actions to cancel your sin so that he could bring you into his family, so that he could make you one of his family. We're justified by his grace. Romans 3, Titus 3. In other words, we have been pronounced not just not guilty, but righteous. He is, he's, his grace has extended to us a, a judgment of this person is a righteous person. We have been justified by him, by his grace. We've been blessed and forgiven according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.6. And since we're under grace, sin has no power over us, Romans 6.4. This is what God's grace does for you. It does to you. It works in your life. God gives us spiritual gifts according to his grace, Romans 12.6. Along with eternal comfort and good hope, 2 Thessalonians 2.16. His grace gives you gifts and parts to you hope because his grace is fixed upon you, because God has set his positive disposition towards who you are. By his grace, Jesus became poor so that we might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and we're given an inheritance. In the end, we'll be glorified in Christ according to the grace of our God, 2 Thessalonians 1, 12. This is what God's positive disposition towards you does. It's not passive. It doesn't sit and just stare and smile at you. God works all things together for your good because he has loved you. That's what he does. So when it says that Stephen is full of grace, it's not like it's some magical power that he has. It is God has fixed on Stephen his attention, his devotion, his love for Stephen. And since God has fixed that on Stephen, Stephen is now embodied with power. And so he performs these miracles because of God's grace on him. So if God has set his, his, um, his positive disposition, if we call grace that, towards us, God acts on it. He brings something to fruit, to fruit in us. So one of the questions you might ask at this point is you look to Stephen and go, well, I'm not Stephen. So how did Stephen get so much grace? And I don't have that much. And how can I get more grace? And that's a legitimate question. Have you ever wondered, how do I get more grace? Not usually. We don't think in those terms. But Peter actually commands us to grow in grace. Did you know that? 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. You are commanded to grow in grace. So how do you grow in grace? If it's God's unmerited favor, how am I supposed to grow in something I didn't earn? How do, I, how do I become more of it if it's just God bestowing it on me? That, that's, that's a real struggle. As we define grace as God's unmerited favor, how on earth am I supposed to grow in something I can't merit? Well, it's God's doing. He has given you ways to grow in grace. He's given us things that we do not to please him, but so that we become more like Jesus Christ. That's the point, is that we become more like Christ. So you grow in grace um, not to, do the, to gain the power to do miracles. If that's what God has for you, you will get that. That's up to him. But we want to grow in grace so that we will be more pleasing to him, to grow to, to please him more. So how do you do that? James 4, 6 and 7. But he gives more grace. Good news. God gives more grace. To who? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
God gives more grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. So if you want to grow in grace, step one, be humble. Okay, what does humble mean? Does it mean milk toast and I let everybody walk all over me and oh, I'd never offend? No, because Moses was humble. He was the most humble man according to Deuteronomy. And yet he was thundering. He was angry at Israel. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. And yet he flipped tables, called people whitewashed sepulchers. So humble doesn't mean being demure and, and you know, passive. What it means is we see ourselves as God sees us. When we recognize who we are in God's sight, not in our own estimation, that's when we're humble. Because we'll never think, I'm all that in a bag of donuts. Of course, everybody listens to me. What we'll think is, God has given me this role. He has put me in this place. He's equipped me with what I need, and therefore. And so the, the eyes go off of me and up to God. That's what it means to be humble. So if you want more grace, first of all, be humble. See yourself as God sees you. Agree with God in who you are. A sinner saved by grace, saved by his good favor. That's where it starts. That's how we get more grace as we become more humble. And so once you've got this grace, then the goal of it is that we grow to be more like Jesus Christ, that we grow in, in the image of Jesus Christ. That's what God has said in Romans 8, 29, for those who, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So if you want to measure your, your growth in grace, ask yourself how much more Christ-like am I today than I was eight years ago, 12 years ago? That's the standard by which you measure that, is am I more Christ-like than I was previously? And as you grow more Christ-like, God is more pleased with you. He, he finds you more favorable because you're more like his son, this perfect image. And that's what God is working in us as we grow in grace. There's a danger here because you can look at this and say, well, I'm doing these things, therefore God must like me more. I think I used the illustration before. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you're a little overweight, blood sugar's a little high, what I'd like you to do is exercise more, um, eat right, drink more water. And you come back and you show the doc, oh, look, I, I, I got this exercise app on my watch and I'm exercising and I've got this app for my phone tells you how much water I'm drinking and I've lost three pounds. And the doc says, great, let's, let's check your blood sugar. Oh, I don't need that. I'm not interested in that. But look at my numbers. My numbers are great. Look what I'm doing. And the numbers aren't the point. The point is let's check your blood sugar. Let's see how you're feeling. Are you getting better? We can do the same thing when we go, Lord, look, I, I did Bible study this morning. Look, I've read your word. I've got, you know how much of your word I've got memorized, God? Aren't you pleased with me? That's missing the point. The point is you read the Bible, you study the Bible, you pray, you memorize the Bible so that you become more like Christ. That's the goal. You can't look at doing the things and say, this is what's going to merit my favor with God. You do these things in order that you draw closer to Jesus Christ, and then you're more like what God wants in humanity. I hope that makes sense. That's, that's how you grow in grace, because we have to grow in grace. It's not an option. We have to do it, but we don't do it by our own works. What we do is we do it by doing the things that God's given us, and he cultivates in us this more Christ-like image. So Stephen is filled with grace. He has grown in grace. He is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's a man seeking after God's own heart. That's why when they were looking for somebody to serve at tables, he said, pick Stephen. 
Look at, look at what he's like. He's like Jesus in a lot of ways. Let's pick him to do that. And so Stephen is selected to, to, um, to wait on tables. So what comes next is the accusation against him. Um, people rose up and they make two accusations against Stephen. And that's where we look at this and we say, well, what's the role of theology? Because what's going on here is there are accusations against Stephen. And usually the best lies are subtle distortions of the truth, not out-and-out fabrications. Those are, the, those are the lies most people will see right through. You know, if I said, you know, there's a, there's a charging rhino coming up the middle, middle aisle, not one of you will look around and you all look around. But if I said something that was much more plausible but wrong, you might be tempted to believe it. Like if I said if there's a fire back there or something, you might. It, it's those subtle twists on the truth that make a lie more plausible. And that's what's happening with Stephen is there's false accusations leveled against him. There's a kernel of truth, but it's shaded incorrectly. And so that's what happens. That's why we need to look now at the role of theology in all of this. So it says there were some who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and Cyrenians and uh, the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. There's, there's some interpretive difficulties here. How many synagogues are they talking about? Um, I think there's one. I think it's the synagogue of the freemen, and the people who go to the synagogue of the freemen are from these other areas. Um, but some theologians look at it and say there's two, and some say three, and some say up to five, that each one of these is a different one. The difficulty is, in Judea, especially around Jerusalem, there weren't a bunch of synagogues at the time, because you just go to the temple. So this, was, this is something that, that um, sometimes is, is a bit of a struggle for people trying to figure out, who are these folks who are opposing him? Well, right before World War I, um, they were doing an excavation in Jerusalem, and they found a, a plaque that was a dedication of a synagogue. And uh, the name that was on the plaque was a man named Theodia, Theodotus, Theodotus, who had consecrated, he'd built this temple. And uh, it said that Theodotus was the son of Vetenus, and that uh, the members of this synagogue were, from, uh, were those who came from abroad. That was the composition of the synagogue that was in Jerusalem first century or so. So, so what? Interesting fact. Cool history. What, what's going on there is they look to Theodotus. That's a Greek name. And so this Greek person built this temple. So the idea is this would be a, a, a Jew who had been part of the diaspora, who had been sent out, and he came back and he built this temple in Jerusalem. But he's the son of Vetenus. And Vetenus, I can't pronounce it correctly, that's a Latin name. That's not a Greek name, that's a Latin name. So how do you have a Greek son with a Latin father? Does that make sense? The, the, the theory here is when a slave was set free, he would often take the family name of the, the people who set him free. So the idea here might be that Theodotus was released by this other family and took their name. And then he returned to Jerusalem, now a free man, and he set up a, a, a synagogue. So it would be the synagogue of the freedmen. And that this synagogue then would be for all the people, all the Jews from around the area who would come and worship, they could come to this synagogue. Pretty thin thread, bit of a stretch. But it's a historical pointer that maybe that's who, what the synagogue is. I think it might be um, that synagogue that drew all of these people together. And so this one synagogue hears about Stephen talking about these things and they rise up against him. They, they're, they're opposed to him. Um, so who are these folks that come? 
Well, the, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians for, were from Africa. Alexandria is in Egypt, um, and Cyrene is in the northern part of Africa. Um, the others are from uh, Asia, and um, that's part of modern Turkey. I always think of Asia, and I go, you know, the east, but it's not. It was, it was what modern Turkey was called. So it's these, these Jews in this Mediterranean area that are attending this synagogue. And they, they hear what Stephen is uh, preaching and teaching, and it says uh, that they opposed him, they disputed with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Um, so the idea there is not that wisdom and spirit are two separate things, but it was the wisdom that the spirit had imparted to him that, that which he was speaking. As a matter of fact, the NIV translates it that way. Um, instead of two different things, it was, it was those things. And so they couldn't withstand him. They're trying to argue with him about what he's saying about Jesus Christ, and they can't. They can't withstand it. Um, so it says that they secretly instigated men who said, who made some accusations. That word secretly instigated, that's the only time it occurs in the New Testament. It's an extremely strong word. And what it has to do with is it has to do with fraud and, and underhanded dealings. So what, what Luke is telling us here is these synagogue of the freemen, they put lying words in people's mouth against Stephen. That's how strong that word is. It's, it's, it's pretty strong. So now the rest of it, there's, there's two accusations, and it's stated in two different ways. The accusations against Stephen are that he's speaking blasphemous word against Moses and God. Why is God second? Why would God be second? Why is it more important that he's speaking blasphemous words about Moses and of God? The, I think the answer is in the second accusation, down in verse 13. This man never speaks to seeks to <laughs> this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, Moses, and the law. Um, Moses would be the law, and this holy place would be representing God. That's why you go to the temple is to worship God. Um, and so they, that's what they're thinking is going on, is, is they're accusing him of blaspheming against the law and against the temple. Does that make sense? I, I think it's the way to put those two statements together, is uh, Moses is standing in for the law, and when they talk about God, they're talking about the temple. So this was a, a common uh, opposition to Christianity from certain sects of Judaism at the time is they really had a fit when they talked about the temple, and they really got upset when they mentioned Moses. And that's something that as we continue to go through Acts, we'll see certain Jews oppose that on a regular basis. Um, I don't think we can say all Jews or Judaism in general. It, it's too broad. There's too many different sects, too many different types of people to say this is what the Jews believed or this is how they, they reacted. Certain groups were this way. So the question then is, are those accusations true? Um, would Stephen preach against the temple and talking about the uh, laws of Moses? Um, let's take them one at a time. So what about the temple? What would, what would um, Stephen possibly say about the temple? Well, what did Jesus say about the temple? Uh, in John chapter 2, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it in three days? And then John intercepts, or inserts, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So did Jesus talk about destroying the temple? Yeah, he did. But 
what he was referring to in John chapter 2 is his body, the temple of his body, is what John tells us. So if they're taking a little bit of truth and twisting it, if this is what, um, what Stephen is talking about, then they would be offended because, well, the Jews he was speaking to at the time were offended. You're going to tear down this temple and raise it in three days? That's not possible. So it could be that, that he's speaking along those lines. And when Jesus was crucified, look through the Gospels, there's a number of times where they, they wag their fingers at him and say, oh, you who are going to tear down the temple and raise it up, pull yourself off the cross. So they used it as a taunt. It was a known fact that Jesus had said, this temple will be torn down and built back up. But was it only the temple of his body? Or was there more to that? Well, I think the best way to handle when Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This generation means the generation standing before me will not pass away until all these things take place. People look at that and say, well, then he was wrong because he didn't return before that generation passed away. So is Jesus wrong? Did he get his own prophecy wrong? I think the best way to handle this generation is he was talking to them not about the end times exclusively, but about what was coming. God would judge the nation. He would destroy the temple. He told them there will not be one stone standing upon another when this is done with. So don't be too attached to this temple. It is coming down. And it actually happened within a generation. 70 AD, it was leveled. So I think that's what he's talking about is he, he was prophesying the destruction of the temple. And people don't like it. This is a holy building. This is dedicated to God. How can you talk about destroying this temple? How can, this is never going to come down. God would never let that happen. And yet Jesus was very clear. Not one stone will be left standing on top of another. So I think that's what he's getting at. And I think Stephen might have even been preaching some of that. We don't know because he didn't record for us what his message was at the time. The one that got him in trouble. We'll hear his response, but what got him in trouble. But that's a consistent New Testament theology is that the temple came to an end. There, there was something going on. So one of the things about Jesus ending the temple, bringing that to a, a finish, has to do with, um, or I'm sorry, one of the ways that people can get upset about that is if you think that all Jesus is saying is the temple's gone and nothing's taking its place, what it sounds to me like is, or what it can sound like is, Jesus is saying, this is the end of my religion. Because I come to temple, I offer sacrifices, I, I have fellowship with God here, I worship here, and if Jesus is saying this is gone, that's horrible. How can he wipe out my religion? How can he, how can he disconnect me from God? In other words, if you look at that and you reject Jesus, then the destruction of the temple is horrible news. But if you go back and you say, well, Jesus is saying this temple is coming down, but something greater is taking its place, then it's not the end of your religion. It's the magnification of your religion. It's the growth. It's something far greater. So what Jesus is saying is this building will come down, but something greater will take its place. And he said it would be his body. He would rise again in three days. The way that unfolds further in church history, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple. The temple is not physically stuck in Jerusalem. The temple now spreads throughout the world. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the end of the tabernacle, the end of the temple, is not bad news if we understand that Jesus replaced it with something greater. 
He replaced it with his own body. He's brought us in. We are the temple, taking God's presence out to the world. And so in Hebrews 8, um, he says a similar thing. He says, now the point in that, uh, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Jesus doesn't say the temple is gone. What he says is this earthly representation of it is fulfilled. I am your new high priest. I am ascending into heaven, and I'm going into the real tabernacle, the actual tabernacle that exists in the heavenly places that was set up not by human hands, but God himself. I am your high priest ascending to your Father in heaven to represent you. So it's not a loss of religion. It's a magnification of it. It's not a diminishing relationship with God. It's a growth of it. It's huge. So if you reject Jesus as the promised one, if you think that Jesus is not the Messiah, he's not the one who came, then the threat to the temple is horrible. And I can't really fault these people if they feel that that was what was going on, but they're missing the point, and therefore they had to tweak his message. Jesus did not say, I'm removing the temple. He said, I'm fulfilling the temple. So it's not a loss, but it's God's bursting forth into the world. So what about speaking against Moses? What about this accusation that they're preaching, that Stephen is coming and he's preaching against the law? He's talking about changing the customs. Well, one of the things you have to ask is what was the purpose of the law? Because that's one of the most important questions that Christians face is what's the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the law and the gospel, between law and grace? It's a continual struggle throughout the New Testament. It's, it's one that the church wrestles with even now. So to get at it, let's say, what was the purpose of law? Why did God give Israel the law? Many different answers, some that I found from just New Testament texts. The purpose of the law was this, Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, and when he says faith, he doesn't mean that before this, nobody had faith. What he's talking about is the faith, the, the, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we hope in. Before the faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith that would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian. The law is our caretaker. The law is our child conductor. The law is our nanny. The law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under that guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The point of the law, the purpose of the law, was to take us by the hand and conduct us to Jesus Christ, to walk us up to Jesus and say, here, he's the one. The law has been a burden to you. You can't do it. You constantly sacrifice, you constantly struggle, you constantly fall. Now come to Christ, come to Jesus Christ and see what this is all about now that you know sin and you know how horrible sin is. So that's why when they complain about the customs being changed, one of the big issues in the New Testament also is circumcision. Well, circumcision had a point as well. It was going in a direction, it was reaching for something. That's why it says in Galatians 5, 6, Paul teaches us, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That old marker that we used to stick by that was so important to us, now nothing. It matters not a whit whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What matters? Only faith working through love. So what was the point of the law? The point of the law was to bring us to Jesus Christ. The point of circumcision 
And if you look through the Old Covenant, you see over and over again, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart. And then we're told, we have received the circumcision made without hands. The circumcision of Christ. Our hearts have been circumcised. Circumcision didn't just disappear. It didn't have no point. It didn't just fall off the map. It came to its fullest meaning, which is a renewed heart in Jesus Christ, a removal of that fleshy heart, or that uh, stone heart, and an insertion of the fleshy heart. That's what the circumcision was about. But if you can't hear Jesus Christ in the middle of that, it sounds like, well, you're just changing everything. He's just re rearranging the law. Um, what we're going to see coming up real soon, another thing that would give them conniption fits. As a matter of fact, the church even wrestled about it in, in Galatians. Chapters 10 and 11 in Acts, Peter is told, all food's clean now. Don't make any distinctions against people based on food. The picture that he's given is, is food picture. So now all food is clean. Um, Jesus himself in Mark pronounced all food clean. That was Mark's comment. So this other marker, this division, this, this bit of the law that they were so hung up on is now not eradicated. It's not erased. It's not just, you know, oh, it's not important anymore. Oh, forget about that. It's, it's fulfilled. It it's comes to a fuller meaning. Jesus pronounced all food clean because food was a, a division. It was a marker that divided people up. You can't eat with Gentiles because of the way they eat, because of where they get their food, because of how they wash. And what the church says is that has now been fulfilled in Christ. We have a meal that we commonly share called communion. And then finally, what about the blood? When you go to the temple, how does Jesus affect that issue, that part of the law? Hebrews 9, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling um, for, of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself out without blemish, blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works. So while you were going to that temple while it was still standing, while you were shedding blood on a regular basis, it couldn't purify your heart. All it could do was atone for that sin. And that was it. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us is Jesus now, by his blood, he's come and not offered one sacrifice for one sin. He's offered one sacrifice for all. And now... You can come back to God and say, I have a clear heart because I know my Savior died and lives. So his blood changed the law in a way, but it didn't change it. It fulfilled it. It brought it to where it was going. It gave us hope for what it really was. The Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our, our, our Passover lamb, our Paschal lamb has been sacrificed. The, the picture of what Passover was, this blood on the doorposts, this staying inside, the destroyer coming through and missing you, that was picturing Jesus Christ. And now Jesus has come. And so you look at the Passover and you go, it's fulfilled. It happened. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So you can see, again, if you reject Jesus from this, if you say Jesus isn't the one, and then you look at what Christians are doing. You, 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 you spoke against the temple, and you're adulterating the law. How can you do these things? This is terrible. But that's why it's important for us to understand this theology at this point. Now, I'm taking you on a bit of a theology uh, trailblazing here. Come on back. Pay attention again. We're going we're to bring this to what this has to do with Stephen. Um, 
If you are looking at the law and you say, this is how I'm made right with God. I, I keep this, I do that, I don't do this, I keep this, and therefore I'm right with God. Will you grow in grace? What Paul tells us over and over again is grace and law are opposites. Now, that doesn't mean go out and sin recklessly. Should we all sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's not grace if that's what you're thinking. But if we're talking about growing in grace, we need to understand what, what um, uh, Stephen is being accused of here. Is if we're looking for the temple, if we're going to the temple and saying that will make us right with God, that's not grace. It's your performance. I will do these things. I will bring this. I will offer that. And then God will be happy with me at the end. That's law. That's not grace. Grace says, Jesus fulfilled all of that in, in my place. He died for me. He died for my sins. He died to give me a clean conscience. He rose again for my justification so that God will look at me and say, innocent. Once you get that, then you look at, Lord, what is it that you want from me? I will do anything you ask. Because you've already set your favor on me. I'm already in your grace. Your unmerited favor rests upon me. I will follow you anywhere. That's why we have to get the theology right. If we mix law in with gospel, we're in trouble. Because we'll begin to think, ah, I did, it. I did really well this week. God's going to be happy with me. And that's important because as we look forward to the rest of the, uh, the uh, book of Acts, especially... Local, let's stick local for a second. Stephen's story. It would, if we don't understand grace, we can look at Stephen's story and go, what a tragedy. How horrible. He was doing great until he got to the application of the sermon, and then they killed him. That's, just, that's tragic. But if we look at it as grace, is death a problem? Death isn't a problem. It's a doorway. It's not a pleasant doorway. It's, it's not one you fit through very easily. It's not one we rush toward. But Stephen is able to look at this and go, yeah, I'm probably going to get stoned, but it's worth it. Because God's grace is fixed on me. And these people need to hear about that. So we have to understand the relationship between law and gospel here. If we get them confused, we will not grow in grace. You simply will not. Because you're not humble. You're not saying, Lord, I see me as you see me. You look at it and you go, well, I must be good enough. I'm performing well. All cylinders are firing here, God. You must be happy with me. Rather than, Lord, I come to you as a sinner, broken, fallen, stumbling, stuttering, and I'm fixed on Jesus Christ and I'm counting on him. That's how you grow in grace. And that's what's important to grow in grace is that we continue to follow after him. So it's important we get the theology right. It's important that we nail this down. It matters to God quite a bit. So then what's the result of that? What's this look like? Once you've got the theology nailed down, once you understand the relationship between law and gospel, grace and, and, and obedience, you've got that all nailed down, what's the outcome? What does it look like? Well, I've already kind of spilled the beans at the beginning. It results in a changed life. You can't continue the way you were as you grow in grace because you think pretty highly of yourself. You're defensive of who you are. You want to cover up and hide. Whereas with grace, you can go, I am who I am, Lord. Thank you for accepting me as I am. And so what it looks like is it manifests itself in our life. It, it shines outward. And so what's the result with Stephen? 
So they, they throw these accusations at him. They haul him back before the council. The council must be really sick of Christians by this point. They've been called together. This is what, the fourth time they've been called together to deal with this Christian problem? This Jesus of Nazareth, what a bother. So they drag him in, and they're all staring at Stephen. The whole council is sitting there just, I imagine, glaring at him. It says they were gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. His face was like the face of an angel. What on earth does that mean? Depends on what you're, what you're thinking of as an angel right now. How many of you are thinking his face was glowing? It, it was like Moses when he came off the mountain, his face was glowing. That's a possibility because angels' faces glow. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, his face was like the appearance of lightning. So Daniel sees this image of this angel who comes to him and his face is glowing like lightning. So it could be that his face is glowing, um, lighting the room up. Could be that um, it looks just like a man, right? So when, uh, when God and the two angels came to visit Abraham in Genesis 18, the way that Moses describes that meeting, it was three men sitting under a tree. There was no glowing face. There was no halo or wings or anything. It just was three men sitting there, and Moses or Abraham came up and said, here, let me make you lunch. So it could be that their face is just like you and I. Um, the real tough one, though, is it can be four faces. In, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, remember that weird vision that Ezekiel had at the beginning? Wheels and wheels and, and thrones and all kinds of bizarre stuff. The, the four living creatures are referred to him as cherubim. Cherubim are a type of angel. And this is how he, is, he describes them. In chapter 1, he says, And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Cool. So they look like people. Well, kind of. But each had four faces, which is very not human likeness. So they had four faces, um, and they each had four wings. As of the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. Um, and then on one side, there was a face of a lion. On the other side was a face of an ox. And then on the back, I guess, was a face of an eagle. So which face of an angel there did they see? Complicated question, isn't it? So what on earth is, is Luke getting at when he says, he, they, they saw his face like the face of an angel. It's unprecedented in the Bible. Nobody else is described that way. In some of the apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic literature is the stuff that isn't inspired by the Bible but sounds kind of religious-y. There's, there's some testaments to Daniel looked like the face of an angel. Esther, when she went into the king, looked like the face of an angel. But that's not inspired. It's not scripture. So we don't really look at it. Here's what's going on. Stephen has grown in grace. He is filled with grace. That means he is closer to who Jesus is. He is closer to God than the people who are staring at him. The religious leaders of the day, the, the ruling council, are looking at him and they're seeing a man who's much closer to God than they are. And so the idea there is that as they look, they're seeing something in his face that they can't put their finger on. They don't know what it is. And so I think Luke uses this, this large term, the face of an angel, to kind of get that point across to us. What might his face look like as he's standing there before the council, before these intimidating guys with big robes and tall hats and, and guards and all of this, and, and coming in in their majesty, and Stephen is just standing there with this face glowing, as it were. He's filled with confidence, but not in his own self. 
He's not looking and saying, I can withstand anything you throw at me. Bring the thumb screws. He's looking and he's going, my God is greater than all of this. And he will see me through. So he stands there like the three men who were thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's uh, oven. Our God will deliver us. And if he doesn't, he'll take care of us anyway. But we will not bow. And so Stephen has that same attitude. He has that same confidence. My God will not let me down. He, because he's filled with grace, he has experienced God's grace. He knows God will remain faithful. He can have that kind of confidence going in. He has a sense of serenity. The worst you can do is kill me. That's, that's it. And what if, I, what if you kill me? What if I'm dead? Closer, my Lord, to thee. I'm ushered into glory. So what have you got to say, guys? That, that, that confidence, that calm, that serenity, that hope that he would have, that's what I think Luke is getting at, is they saw something in his face that was distinct. And, and brothers and sisters, as we grow in grace, people will notice it not just in our manner of life, but also in our confidence, in our hope, in, in the way we process things, in the way we understand things. Uh, Lisa and I were in an accident Friday, and uh, I posted a picture on Facebook of the car, and my comment was, it could have been worse. And I just started listing things that, you know, we got hit by a mini, which I was kind of hoping it would just bounce off because it's a mini. But it, what if it was a, a, a dually, one of those big, huge pickup trucks that hit us? It could have been worse. The, the impact was just behind Lisa's door. It just barely touched her door and, and crushed in the back seat door. What if it hit her full on? It could have been worse. We left the dog at home. If the dog was in the car, he'd be in the back seat right where the impact was. But he wasn't. It could have been worse. And a friend of mine from back in the old days before I came out back out here said, that's a very interesting perspective. And what I commented under that was, I'm grieving in hope. I wish, I really, 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 really wish we hadn't gotten in that accident. I really counted on that car lasting another bunch of years. But that doesn't crush me. That, I'm not undone because our car is dead. Because I'm, hope, I'm grieving with hope. I know my Lord can, can provide. That's the kind of thing it means to grow in grace, is to exhibit that kind of hope in the face of a world that has its hope in how good I look this week, how much money I make, the size of my house, do I get to go on vacation this year or not, um, what's on TV, who thinks I'm cool? You know, those kind of questions. Take any one of those away, and that person is crushed. They're undone. We have something that cannot be taken away. We have a hope that the world can't touch. All it can do is increase it. So that's what it would mean for us to grow in grace and to have somebody look at us and say, they have the face of an angel. We have something about us, a hope that, that nothing seems to phase. Even when they have tears in their eyes, they seem to have hope. And I don't understand that. This is really important for us that we get this from Stephen for a very important reason because he's about to face persecution. The church is about to face persecution. We, fortunately in this country, don't face that kind of persecution, but we do face opposition. We do face slander. We do have people wagging fingers at us and saying what horrible people we are. How do you endure that? Jesus isn't here to tell you it's okay. How do you endure that? Well, I think if Stephen is our example, if we look at Stephen and say, God, what are you doing in Stephen? What we see is God telling us, grow in grace. Grow in grace. Become more Christ-like. 
Avail yourself of these things that I've given you to help you, encourage you, to, to train your heart to be more Christ-like and see if that doesn't have a difference. So this is the power. This is what we need as we go into the, the, the first martyr of the Christian era. Is We need that hope that the grace will be sufficient even in the face of stones flying at him. That hope will be sufficient even in the insults hurled at us. That hope will be sufficient in us even when we get passed over for a job because we're not partying with the rest of the folks. May they also see in our face the face of an angel. And that's part of the way that we bring the message to the world. Let's pray. Lord, um, the first way we grow in grace is to be humble. You love to give grace to the humble. And Lord, it is so hard for us to be humble. Our broken, sinful hearts are so filled with ourselves, so filled with our world, so filled with our accomplishments. It is really hard for us to grow in grace by being humble. Would you grant all of us this morning humility? Grant all of us the, the vision of seeing us as you see us, rebels, people at odds with you, those who don't understand, who, who break your law willingly, unwillingly, knowingly, unknowingly. Lord, help us to see ourselves as broken sinners that we are. But Lord, don't let us forget the other half of that equation. We are in Christ. We have been justified. We have been pronounced innocent. Not only innocent, we have been pronounced righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our place. And Lord, I pray that between those two realities, we would struggle to be humble. Have very little trust, very little hope in ourselves, but tremendous hope in what you are going to do in and through us. Grant us humility. And then, Lord, cause us to love, to delight, to, uh, to dwell in those things that you've given us, to train our hearts to be more like Jesus. Fellowship, worship, prayer, service, scripture, all of those things that you've given us, Lord. Make them grow in us, we pray. And, Father, I pray that the result of all of this is that our faces would look like angels to the world around us. There would be something peculiar about this people. That we would stand out as strange in this world because of the hope we have in Christ. Lord, bless us. We, we beg for more of your grace, more of your favor, unmerited, unearned, poured out on us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.